This is Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. The special legislative session is over. The Clark County School Board is in disarray. COVID-19 rates are soaring so high in Nevada, especially Southern Nevada, that we are being grouped with states like Florida. I hate it when we get grouped with Florida. As of this taping, we have 41,000 coronavirus cases in Nevada and 722 deaths. We have a 12% positivity rate. 12% of our population is positive. Meanwhile, less than 500,000 people have been tested for coronavirus in a state with a population of about 3 million. Today, we're going to look at what happened in the legislature and what happened in the school district this week with a look ahead to the coming week when CCSD trustees will be meeting about Superintendent Jara's contract. I'm going to bring in Alexandra Appleton right now. She is the uh, education reporter for the Review Journal. She sits through all of the school board meetings that (laughs) the people I've been talking about sit through. Uh, It's actually pretty fun. And she's also been watching the legislature, uh, albeit from afar, uh, and uh, has written about AB2 and the fallout from AB2. Alexandra, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Carrie. And aren't those board meetings kind of fun? I think more people should watch those. I think, I think they'd be surprised. I, not only uh, should I think more people watch those, but I do know that there are a cadre of high school students who do watch them and who really? comment on them. And yes, there's like a lot of text messages that fly around. That's uh, very impressive, isn't actually. It? Isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really good for them. Yes, and it's it's quite entertaining because, you know, there are people on the board who hate each other, and you never know when somebody's <laughs> going to throw a bomb or a grenade at the other person. You really don't. And, you know, before we went to this distance watching model, we, um, we were having a lot of fun with the public comment, I'd say, between January and March. Yeah. And the, you know, the substitutes were out there advocating for themselves. But I'd say that there's always fireworks going on at those. I have to point out the irony that other people have pointed out that the school board meets uh, distantly. Mm-hmm. They, they they meet mm-hmm. remotely to talk about sending kids and teachers back mm-hmm. into physical schools. Uh, and you'll love this. What my sources tell me is let them go first. Let them be the teachers on the first day, see how it goes with the kids, and then you can send all the employees back. <laughs> I've actually heard that. I've, I, I, yeah. I have seen that myself, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, go in and walk through and see how mm-hmm. safe you feel in the school. Sit in the classrooms, yeah, absolutely. But let's talk yeah. about AB2 right now. Sure. Um, there, you know, there uh, is some disagreement, shall we say, about (laughs) how it got started. Uh, Mm -hmm. You at the Review Journal have actual emails uh, (laughs) that were sent from Brad Keating and and, uh, that included Superintendent Jara in Mm -hmm. mid-June asking for um, uh, carryover funds to be part of this special session. Uh, And and I, I found it really fascinating that Colton Lockheed actually got the email read to him by Jason Frierson mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. prior to to this story breaking. Uh, what happened here? And and who's right in terms of, you know, all of the, the spin that's going out? Oh, isn't that always the question? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely credit to my colleague Colton, who just like, 
got those emails, you know, um, I'd been shaking down my trees trying to get them that day and Colton got them. So all credit to him. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And as as far as I understand, um, the district was specifically responding about this email that had been sent to Assemblyman Frierson on June 23rd saying that, well, the conversation was initiated by Superintendent of Public Instruction, Joan Ebert actually. Um, The other email that we got was actually an email on June 16th that showed district representatives apparently approaching the superintendent about the conversation. You know, it becomes a question of where do these threads begin? And of Mm. course, that's the next thing to find out, right? Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of the story of the emails that we have, as as you read in the in the article Colton had, and what a lot of people would say is what we need to be focusing on is what these cuts are going to do to instructional quality. Have they talked a li- anything about uh, what what how it would help student achievement if they did take carryover funds and centralize them? Well, you know what what they what. CCEA, I believe, presented in that amendment to the bill was that the they wanted to introduce an amendment that would redirect that carryover money specifically to schools that are going to be really hurt by the loss of SB 178 funds and loss of read by grade three funds, which I think most advocates in the state right now are really focused on because they're they're the money that helps um, low income and English learner students who are not in those Zoom and Victory schools. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a lot of students. I think the number that was thrown out was like 198,000 or something like that that um, that are going to be hurt by the lost programs, and everyone's looking for ways to um, prevent that. The 178 funds, and, and 178 refers to a bill, SB 178. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe I'm going to go back and explain this here. Uh, the Victory schools and Zoom schools are schools with very, very high, like 99% or more populations mm-hmm. of, of people who are English language learners and or uh, at, at an economic disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and they get money. They just they get money specifically through Victory and Zoom. Those are not on the cutting block. Uh, the right. but there are uh, ELL students and there are economically disadvantaged schools scattered throughout the school district, and so that's where SB one seventy eight came in. So um, sure. uh, I want to go back to AB two because mm-hmm. you know it. it uh, Daniel Ford. Uh, mm-hmm. talked about, uh, what, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, she threw out a bomb at the end of uh, the uh, board meeting mm-hmm. and said, well, I would really like to know how we go about uh, terminating a superintendent's contract. Mm-hmm. And it was at the very end of the board meeting. You really do have to watch these things to the You really do. The and, and she was swiftly chastised oh, by two of the other board members. Oh, and... Um, and, and it seemed to have come out of nowhere, um, knowing her mm. probably was planned, but still. Um, and now we have this, I mean, you know, the issue here with, with Superintendent Chara is that the governor of our state is accusing mm-hmm. him of lying. The, right. the superintendent of state education is accusing him of lying. How does mm. he get out of something like that? Um, you know, he's saying that it's time to refocus. It seems like in his statement on Monday, he's saying that the, you know, the way out is that we're going to, 
we're going to move on from this as a whole and refocus on the cuts. And I have heard other people say is if we are going to talk about this, can we please talk about it after the special session? We see, you know, what kind of carnage there is to reckon with out of that. Moving <laughs> to the reopening. Uh, I, yes. I feel like I, I, I feel like this has been an onion and that's been so like slowly peeling off, very slowly <laughs> peeling off. From the very beginning, uh, they were told that they had to come up with a plan because the state needed a plan. And then after three sessions, three very long sessions, uh, mm-hmm. They were told, well, no, you just, you don't, we just need a plan and then you can redo the plan. It doesn't have to be set in stone. And right. and the board members were like, what? <laughs> and I heard yeah. yesterday that the mm-hmm. actual reopening plan didn't even need to go to. Apparently not. To, okay, so explain, <laughs> explain that to me. Yeah, I I needed an explanation myself from the Nevada Department of Education, who educated me that what they needed was if the district needed a conversion of instructional days to professional days, which they do right at the beginning of the school year Mm -hmm. um, in order to move their the first day back to August 20th, first day for students back to August 24th, those calendar questions needed to be approved by the NDE. The I the process or format of exactly what schools are going to look like, that doesn't get approved by the NDE, apparently. Um, They have to submit a certification that they followed the guidelines in developing a plan, and they need to submit it to their board of trustees 20 days before schools are reopening. So as far as NDE is concerned, they are good to go. They can meet and modify to their heart's content now. Uh, yeah, and credit for to trustee Linda Cavazos, who is, you know, the one to call NDE and figure out, you know, for me and the rest of the community that, uh, nope, we, we don't need your reopening plan. It's, it's up to you to approve it. Uh, Alexandra Appleton is a uh, reporter for the Review Journal. She focuses on education. Uh, Our paths cross quite a bit as we are uh, eating our popcorn and laughing and taking (laughs) notes uh, at the the Clark County uh, School Board, uh, school trustees. And uh, thank you for being on, Alex. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Carrie. I had talked with Alexandra last week. Since then, another special meeting has been scheduled to look at the issue of Superintendent Jara's employment. It will be Wednesday, July 29th at 1 p.m. I will post the live stream on Nevada Voice's Facebook page, and I will be posting at Carrie Kaufman on Twitter. Principals know their demographics. They know their schools. They know their community. They know their students. Uh, anything that I can give the discretion to the school, you know, I support. Did we survey the principals? What do the principals want? Um, we've, we've worked um, closely with working groups of principals. Um, none, of these, none of these options are easy. None of them are perfect options. Um, principals have expressed concern with AP courses, mathematics courses, and IB courses. So, so there are some concerns that they have expressed. Okay, that's what they've expressed. But I mean, did we do a survey with the principals to say, 
Okay, so I'm just trying to make sure I'm supporting the principals out there. Um, most seem to like them. I, I'm not quite sure if I understand all of it. I'm, I'm trying to. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm trying to say the, and, and if, if somebody wants to let me know if I'm right or, or wrong on this. Um, I was just wondering about, uh, somebody had asked, I don't remember which trustee, about uh, whether the uh, principals were surveyed. I think that was Dr. Young. Um, which principals, which secondary principals were in this working group? I mean, how many did we have? Are they the same ones that have been in the same working group since the beginning? I don't know, of the year, uh, do we know who they are? I mean, can we get some more information on that? Madam President, members of the board, Superintendent Chara, Debbie Brockett for the record. We did have several working groups at the secondary level. We, we were holding these working groups during a time in which many principals were, some, no, I shouldn't say many, several of the ones that were invited weren't able to attend. So I don't have the exact numbers printed out in front of me, but if I remember correctly at high school, we started with four principals just to kind of bounce some ideas off them um, in a quick conversation before we developed it. We then invited 14 additional high school principals identified from each zone, trying to keep our numbers low enough that we could socially distance within the room we had and bring them in live so we could have a conversation. So that was at high school. And then at middle school, same thing, we had a group start at the middle school level. So they were the first working group. Um, Dr. O'Rourke started with them. And then we then pulled in, the region superintendents pulled in another, again, we invited um, four from each, or, I'm sorry, five from each region, which was 15 and 13 of them were able to attend that meeting at that point in which several of them went back and developed full schedules off the semester-based courses. And then it's been ongoing conversations. So I know this is long about, but I, I don't want to give you exact numbers, but it was a variety of CTAs. We made sure we included the CTAs, um, IB schools, um, general schools, just with a regular six period day schedule, um, a principal with a seven period schedule. So we tried to make it diverse and differentiated to meet to get input from all the different types of schedules. I, I would feel a lot more comfortable with this if this was something where the working group principals then had had an opportunity to present it to the entire group of the secondary principals. And I realize that sometimes that's unwieldy. Let them make the call. For me to get up here and make this call and and uh, on, on which one to go with, and, I, and I'm, I'm getting feedback now, um, and probably could have gotten feedback before, I think staff needs to make sure these principles check off the box. And then we can say, here's what we, we got from our high schools, here's what we got from our middle schools, or here's what we got from the trustees in, in, in District C or in District A, or it may even break it up by that. But then at least we've got some, some information. That was a montage of questions asked by school board members Linda Cavazos and Linda Young to CCSD staff. As you heard, they were worried most about principals weighing in on whether their schedule should be year-long or semester-based. One of the regional superintendents, Debbie Brockett, couldn't give an answer to that. She indicated a few times that there was just no consensus among the principals. But as Linda Cavazos brought out, 
Less than 20 principals from middle schools and 20 principals from high schools were consulted. Ultimately, the board decided to start with distance learning for all students, then revisit the COVID models every 90 days to see if the district could slide into a hybrid model. The schedule for elementary schools will not change. The schedule for high schools will not change. That is, high schools will take year-long classes, as usual, and principals will have the discretion to do six to eight classes, as usual. Middle schools, though, will be on a four-course-per-semester model that the board approved for the State Board of Education's deadline, that very deadline you heard Alex Appleton earlier say was really non-existent. I sat through the CCSD meeting on Tuesday. I have listened to my recording of it numerous times. I still don't know how or why middle schools are on a semester schedule and high schools are on the year-long schedule. It seems that the trustees were getting texts and emails from principals at the same time that they were having the discussion, and they were getting conflicting opinions. In fact, you can hear that in the montage I played a minute ago when Trustee Young paused and said, oh, okay, she was reading an email and trying to talk at the same time. Here's Trustee Garvey's comments on what she was hearing electronically. I, I too, am getting all kinds of feedback that's all over the map. Uh, One of the concerns that was brought up is by doing the traditional year-round long courses with school discretion, that there's an incredible amount of workload writing up um, semester-long courses into Canvas. What kind of support are we providing on that front? Trustee Linda Cavazos gave some compelling arguments for the year-long schedule. Here's one of them. I have to say that I am not really sold on this. I'm very concerned about the social, emotional, mental health of everyone right now. I'm thinking about emergent bilingual learners. Uh, what would the fast pace of the learning do to them in two languages, whether it's fundamental uh, course to begin with and then going on to the advanced? Trustees Irene Cepeda and Danielle Ford brought up that the schools weren't ready to open so soon, given the uncertainty that they've been living with. Ford urged the district to consider a later start date, a suggestion that was not taken up at all. Here's Irene Cepeda explaining why she was voting for the option that would reinstate the regular year-long timeline. Ultimately, for me, the reason why I'm going with option three is because there's still one. We don't know what the connectivity looks for, like for a lot of these students. Um, every time they change from semester course, they're going to have to switch whatever method they're learning online. So I feel like there's always that that period of time where they had to relearn kind of how a teacher is teaching online. So there's always that time lost. Uh, I worry about not having Chromebooks in every student's hands. So how are we in this first semester expecting students to learn if they're not going to have a Chromebook until October or a, you know, a district device until October. So I think it will mitigate a little bit of the instructional time lost. Um, Sadly, I have to say that. Um, But I think ultimately that's why I'm choosing the the year-long courses because we're cramming a semester worth of content in one semester. There's still so much in the air at the moment. So Cepeda made an important point here. The district cannot ensure that all students who need Chromebooks will get them before October. 
there's a supply chain issue, as you can imagine, with most of the school districts in the country suddenly doing distance learning. But I want to get back to this issue about the trustees getting feedback by text and email as they were deliberating. There are two problems with this. It appears to be a violation of open meeting law, and it limits the information that trustees can get from a meeting. The public has no way of knowing without a public records request who was texting and emailing the trustees and what they were saying. The school district has about 200 total middle school and high school principals. Debbie Brockett said she heard from about 40. How many were contacting the trustees? 10? 2? 100? Did parents have the personal emails and phone numbers of trustees so that they could weigh in? Did teachers? Support staff? The irony is that this problem, which has been around for some time, is made worse by the fact that we're holding virtual meetings. Public comment has to come in via email hours before the virtual meeting starts, and the comments don't come to all board members, just the president. If the meeting was in person, then trustees could have asked principals what they thought, and they could have commented right then. Other stakeholders could have signed up during the meeting and weighed in on their preferences. That cannot happen now in virtual meetings. I don't know why. I've asked. The answer is pretty much, those are the rules. But during the special session, the legislature allowed people to call in to do public comment live on the phone. Why can't the school board do the same? The open meeting law reads, any practice or policy that discourages or results in preventing public comment, even if technically in compliance with the law, may violate the spirit and intent of the open meeting law. I believe the Clark County School Board is violating the spirit of the law. I'm going to ask President Lola Brooks to immediately change the rules so that CCSD stakeholders can participate in the virtual meetings as they happen. Not only would this ensure that people get to say their piece, it also ensures that board members are apprised of information as the meeting develops. You are listening to Impact on KUNV 91.5 Jazz and More. I'm Carrie Kaufman. We come to you every Saturday morning with a roundup of the week's news in COVID, in education, in politics, and just about everything that affects Nevada. Right now, we're going into our interview. The special session ended over the weekend with a whimper. Lawmakers cut roughly $150 million from Health and Human Services, which was $81 million less than Governor Sisolak had recommended. They also cut about $162 million from K-12 education, about $30 million more than the governor recommended, and about $130 million from higher education. Those three categories make up about three-quarters of the budget. Public employees are also taking six furlough days starting in January. The original proposal included 12 furlough days. And public employee merit pay has been restored. But the session was all about cuts. One proposal to raise revenue was brought up twice, 
and failed both times. The measure would have softened the blow of cuts by lowering the deductions that mining companies can take from their tax payments. Over the weekend, we talked to Senator Ivana Cancella and Assemblywoman Maggie Carlton. And today we're talking to Senators Keith Pickard and James Settlemeyer. Welcome to the program, both of you. Thank you. Thank Uh, you. So, Keith, I want to use both sound alike, so I'm just going to have to say your names each time. Uh, uh, Keith Pickard, I want to start with you. Uh, You were on the hot seat for voting no on the mining tax and then telling uh, the Nevada Independent that you would be a yes if you would be assured that that tax would go to education. And then the Democrats, from what I'm told, came to you and said, okay, sure, we assure you of that. And you still voted no on the second round of the mining tax. Were those assurances not enough? Did you learn new information? What happened there? Yeah, I I mean, first, let's start out with the, uh, you know, when we were first talking about this, um, uh, as as the session began, we knew that uh, this was coming. They didn't uh, share with us any of the language. But one of the things, one of the representations made early on was that they were going to uh, uh, craft this so that we weren't talking about uh, massive layoffs and, and putting uh, uh, mines out of business. So with that context, thinking that uh, they had taken care of it so that uh, the marginal mines weren't going to be put out of business and we weren't going to be facing massive layoffs and, and uh, significantly impacting the, the uh, communities surrounding them. Um, you know, I, uh, I was a yes. My district was telling me that uh, they wanted this. Um, uh, I'm not uh, uh, opposed to it philosophically, so I'm going in thinking I'm a yes, provided that it is going to be to education. And there was nothing in the bill, number one, that protected mines, number two, that uh, uh, there was any discussion about the dollars going to education. So uh, now, mind you, this is uh, it, the hearing started at 11.30 p.m. Mm. We didn't get into the meat of the uh, questions until about two in the morning. Uh, and uh, then by 2.30, as we were wrapping it up, I made the statement that, you know, I'm a yes if this goes to education. Now, as I started uh, discussing the details uh, with fiscal staff, they had commented that it was not uh, protective of the uh, marginal mines and, and the startups and, and those that uh, really stood to lose and uh, so I said, okay, uh, we need to get the uh, mining industry in. Uh, and when I say mining industry, I think it's important to note that we're talking about more than just the mines. We're talking about all of the subcontractors and all of the suppliers and all of the ancillary businesses that are built up around the mines in order to support the community. Even the uh, auto dealers are impacted. Uh, And so, uh, you know, we're talking about a fairly wide swath of the community in each of the communities that serve uh, the miners. And so uh, we're we're looking at a significant impact if we get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I told fiscal staff because I couldn't get I mean, this is uh, at this point, it's a Saturday. It's hard to get a hold of anybody. Right. Um, And so we're trying to figure out how do we protect the mines and fiscal I think made a good faith effort uh, and they thought just judging on the statistics, $10 million threshold is probably enough. Now, mind you, this is a gross margins tax, which I philosophically uh, oppose in most instances, 
But the sense was going in that this was enough. Okay, hang, hang know, on a second. Hang on a second. You said two things here that I need to I need to follow up on. One was sure. ten million dollars, which which is you would te- you would uh, lower the deductions for mine mining companies that made more than ten million dollars, and mining companies that made less than ten million dollars would not would not be subject to this. Correct. That's correct. That's okay. exactly right. And so, and the, wait a second. And the other part yeah, of this is is that I has been under the impression that this is a that this entire tax is a net mining tax. Where is no. it? Where is it gross tax? No, it's uh, uh, the uh, uh, well. The tax itself is on the net after the the deductions, but the threshold was built on the gross. So to the extent that we're measuring gross, it uh, becomes a gross margins tax. I see. Okay. Um, so uh, we're looking at the gross. And uh, they took a conservative, uh, wild guess as to where that number should be based on the statistics that they had in front of them. But they were clear to say, we are not experts in the business of mining. We think this is where it is, but we don't know. And then uh, if you look at the original uh, presentation, they were saying things like, we don't have that information or, you know, we, this, this isn't our specialty. We, we don't know. And so we went in uh, to the second uh, uh, set uh, of, of questions, and uh, now we're even less confident that we've got it right. Mm. Well, between the time that we had thought we had settled on appropriate language and the time that uh, uh, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, so between about 7.30 and 11, uh, that's when the mining industry and the automobile dealers and the uh, chambers of commerce and uh, the subcontractors and suppliers uh, started feeding us the information that we needed to make a decision. And the thing that we realized was, and the example that was given was the Reynolds mine, uh, they make significantly more than 10 million, but because copper is not as, as precious a metal and because it doesn't get the market prices that gold does, if they were subject then to the tax, they would be underwater by tens of millions of dollars and they would shut down the mine. Now let's think about that for a minute. There are about 3000 miners uh, uh, involved in, or, or so, and that these are rough numbers, uh, I haven't verified them, but I'm told there are about 3000 miners uh, that are directly involved in the mine and well those that are employed by the mine mm-hmm. then we've got uh, another two or three thousand subcontractors and suppliers and maintenance people and and the, the the various businesses that support both the mine and the people uh, in the mines and so we're talking about thousands of people and this is just one mine right that would be <clears throat> laid off put onto uh, uh, Medicaid put onto the unemployment rolls, and why? For a $50 million tax. Okay, so so I'm going to follow up here. Um, a $50 million tax, I've seen the number $110 million. Can you explain to me that discrepancy, or are we, are we taking two years here? Well, no, you're, you're talking about two different things. The $100 million was the tax that would already be uh, applied, and then this was the 90% more. Ah, that would so I'm talking about the differential, not the total. Okay. They're already getting about sixty million, and this was going to be a uh, fifty million dollar ad. 
Okay. Now, so for the... $50 million that weren't coming in, we were going to lay off several thousand people. That didn't make sense to me. And it was based on a process that did not involve the mines or any of the other ancillary industries. Because, you know, they, they, one of the questions from the other side of the aisle was, well, isn't it true that you knew, or maybe it was a public comment, that you knew this was coming? Well, yes, everybody knew that, you know, the, the majority had targeted the mining industry, but you can't rebut an argument until you see it. Okay, so and it wasn't presented until 7 p.m., in the assembly and then 11 30 p.m in the senate okay so that's you can't, and then you limit their opposition to two minutes apiece okay i'm gonna i'm gonna, I'm gonna bring to in this. i'm gonna bring in senator Sedemeyer here because i think you bring sure. up a really interesting point what i think keith was saying is that the democrats didn't make a good enough case they didn't even have the numbers to make a case is that right you know all session long we had extreme problems getting numbers uh, on the second day, we were going through with the governor's budget office, Susan Brown, and we asked, well, okay, you're indicating you're going to sweep some money out of these accounts. How much money does that leave in the account for a reserve to make sure that they're safe and that they have enough reserve left over? And also, do you have any more? And we we're told, oh, we'll get that answer to you. Next day, no answer. Will you get that answer to us? Oh, absolutely. I'll get that answer to you. Next day, can we get that answer? You know, we're on a special session. Usually, most special sessions only take two to three days. We really need these answers. I'll send them to your fiscal staff. Two days later, fiscal finally gets them. And that's very problematic in a special session scenario. I mean, this is the longest, most disorganized special yeah. session I've ever partaken in. I've been there 15 years now. Yeah, that's what I've heard from a lot of people, though. But I just want to clarify, who wasn't giving you the numbers? There was a tendency when we were talking to one director, we asked them, how much money do you have in your reserve account? And they're like, oh, what? Reserve account. How much do you have left? Uh, I'm not sure about that. I'll have to get back to you. And it took those directors two to three days to get us numbers. And then we they really didn't want to give them to us. And so we'd have fiscal go into those accounts and try to figure it out. But it takes time. And that's not the way it should work. You know, they should give you an answer immediately and then make the decision, you know, or as quick as possible. I know they don't know everything off the top of their head, but it should only take one day to give you an answer. Uh, what I'd like to add to that is just that uh, in a couple of instances, the directors told us offline that the governor had been notified of various reserve accounts, but he elected not to sweep them. Ah. We discovered a good deal of money through honest conversations with different groups and different individuals. And we it looked like and I don't know that this is accurate, but it looked like they were trying to hide money that they could use at another time or to cushion the blow. Yet other departments like uh, uh, Enshi was asked to give up almost 19 percent mm -hmm. after the two tranches, if you will. And they willingly complied. So there seemed to be the disparity in how the different departments were being treated and it looked like they were trying to hide money again i don't know that that's true but from you know our vantage point and this i think was shared in in both uh both parties both sets were saying okay what don't we know and it allowed us actually 
to, in a bipartisan way, go down the budgets and really identify where those hidden uh, numbers were, where the reserves were, how many reserve accounts are we talking about, uh, how many, you know, uh, settlement uh, accounts were at the AG's office. I don't know that we ever got clarity on that. But, you know, there are accounts with reserves sitting at, remember, we've had three or four years of boom, yeah. right? We've been building up these reserves and all the departments were building up reserves. And now we need them to cough it up so that we can avoid the, the draconian cuts that were originally proposed. And we succeeded. And, and in the end, we ended up getting much of the ad backs that we, the Republican Senate caucus had uh, uh, proposed. They ended up putting them in. Yeah, uh, Governor Sisolak proposed $1.2 billion in cuts, and you got it to about just a little over $1 billion total in cuts. But so um, let's, let's get In that to... respect, though, yeah. we had $252 million in the CARES Act funds that existed five days before the end of session. Now, certain people tried to start spending that money, so it wasn't available. That money, as we found out at the last day of special session, where the Assembly Democrats decided to put $50 million magically yeah. into education sub-account was able to be used. See, that money was immediate. It was direct. It was immediate. You didn't have to wait till somebody turned in their books right. or trued up or anything of that nature six months to a year from now. It was immediate. So I, I don't, I, that's my question also. Wasn't that money always going to go to education? We had money from the CARES Act that went, that was earmarked for education. I thought that was part of the original calculation. You know, that's a great question. And the only people that know that are the people who control the purse. Hmm. But we'll never know for sure. They will tell you today, of course, that was going to education. But I challenge you to find any mention of that in the original budget proposal, in the original AB3 that was proposed, because it's not there. This, the special session, the atmosphere of the special session, there, was, there were a few delays because somebody got or tested positive for COVID-19, uh, which is the height of irony, if you ask me. Um, yeah. I don't really understand why people had to go to the session. Uh, I understand that you were home on the last day, Senator Pickard. I heard you on the phone. Um, but there was a lot of blowback when you voted no on this mining tax. There were uh, the social media blew up. I'm sure that you you got specific direct contacts from people. Uh, oh, there sure. were hundreds of flip flops that were put outside your office uh, as a stunt, as a publicity stunt. What did you think of all that? Yeah, well, you know, um, uh, yes, I, I got a lot of feedback, uh, both positive and negative. Um, there were many who said that uh, the tax wasn't necessary. There were several that said the tax would have hurt them. And there were several that said the tax should have been had because the ends justify the means. Um, lots of those. And so... Uh, you know, we sign up for this stuff and, and I put myself uh, inadvertently in the crosshairs. Uh, but, you know, we signed up for that. That's OK. Um, I did what uh, on reflection uh, I should have done. And as I said to uh, my colleagues uh, in one of my uh, uh, what defensive arguments was that, uh, you know, they're saying, well, I, I went back on my word. Well, you know, sometimes it makes sense to do that. And the example I gave 
was if a prosecuting attorney makes a commitment to a victim that they are going to get the conviction and you know find justice for the victim and then in the course of the prosecution discovers that oh maybe they're innocent mm. does it make sense to keep your word to the victim of course not we don't convict uh our innocent people okay so i want to go back to uh, that revenue part that you mentioned just a few minutes ago, uh, you are you're going back into session uh, at least um, February of 2021. You may go back into a special session right. again, uh, depending on how COVID goes to deal with social justice and voting. Uh, but you mentioned that there's a there's a like a more a bigger an omnibus revenue package that you're considering for 2021. So talk yes. to me about that. Yeah, we've got several of our caucus members have different ideas, uh, things that they've been putting out. For example, uh, Senator Hardy uh, uh, has a uh, uh, program. And, and again, these are their programs. I don't have uh, all the details, but it's a program that would allow uh, uh, solar plants and, and other renewable energy uh, developers to sell their, their product uh, to California or to other states. Um, where we would have uh, the ordinary wheeling fees plus a charge um, uh, that would uh, uh, go to the customers. Uh, and so the uh, local producers would collect that on behalf of the state. And given the amount of energy that uh, comes out of the state, um, he estimated or, or the experts uh, had estimated that that would generate something around $600 million dollars. So you're going to tax um, now, renewable energy, which just passed in the last session. Well, it's not a tax, okay? okay? It's a, a charge that goes out for uh, the uh, – uh, well, I'll, I'll let Senator Hardy answer the details. Okay. But there's okay. that. Uh, I brought a package where uh, – or intend to bring a package where we're going to look at the secondary ticket market, particularly now that we've got uh, uh, all of the major uh, sporting events coming to Las Vegas – um, there's a great deal of money left on the table uh, by the secondary market for tickets uh, that we don't collect a tax on, and that's actually larger in dollar volume than the original sales. Other states tax it, we don't. Um, uh, and then there are several other packages uh, that uh, we talked about where we can go in and uh, you know, basically broaden it, cut out the loopholes, Make sure everybody's paying about the same amount for whatever it is that uh, we're taxing. They're not going to be new taxes in context, uh, uh, but you know we're we're talking about making sure that everybody who uh, uh, should be paying the tax actually pays the tax. Then it's about uh, balancing those taxes against our spending and making sure that uh, we raise money to uh, uh, to pay or to pay into education and readjust our uh, priorities so that education is adequately funded. Now, whether or not the Democrats allow us to do this is going to be a different question, mm. but we've got a better package that will generate a whole lot more than $50 million, and it's not on the backs of the people who can't afford it. Okay, so you mentioned the secondary ticket market. Uh, I'm, I know that the, en the entertainment tax does not include sports teams, would you be? Would either of you be in favor of uh, including sports teams in that tax? 
Well, yeah, I, I, I don't know that uh, um, uh, there because we tax different uh, organizations differently sometimes. Um, you know, we, for example, we don't uh, tax the insurance company on 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 uh, claims paid or anything. We we uh, tax them. Well, it wouldn't be paid, but uh, you know, we we tax their premium, but we tax that differently than we t uh, tax, uh, say, uh, a retailer. So we we do tend to be uh, a little bit myopic in how we address each industry, uh, and we probably ought to look at that. Okay. But when it comes to live entertainment, um, that's kind of a different beast. But uh, should we be taxing uh, uh, these entities that uh, you know produce something like that? Well, if we're taxing one, we should tax all. Um, um, uh, but James Sotomayor, what do you think about that? Oh, this is Senator Sotomayor. We had actually reached out to businesses across the state of Nevada. We're forming an alliance of those businesses. Mining has agreed to step up to examine how it would be best to tax their industry to generate more money for the state of Nevada. We've reached out to all the core businesses that are out there, and they're all of them. All of them are saying, without a doubt, let's work on it during the interim. Let's come in February and do what's right for the state of Nevada and help it through these economic times and to make it a better place. As far as the secondary market within the ticket sales, I'll be honest, I don't have that many ticket sales in uh, Douglas County, <laughs> so I'm not as familiar with it. Okay, I want to move on to um, the possibility of the next session. Uh, our numbers, our COVID numbers are rising. Uh, can you do sessions remotely? Is that, is, that, is that possible? Do you have to go up there again, vote to do sessions remotely, and then you can come home? Senator Pickard? Well, um, you know, Senator uh, Settlemeyer uh, talks about this quite a bit, so I'll let him take the bulk of it. But the short answer is, obviously, we can uh, because we did. Right. Um, but uh, should we do it? I, I question it. Uh, um, uh, Senator Settlemeyer, you want to talk about the Constitution? Sure. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I'm, I've uh, lived next to Carson City for quite a while, and the Constitution of the State of Nevada firmly states that the seat of government is Carson City. And it's always been interpreted that way, that unless, the, as the Constitution says, in an act of war, we can go somewhere else. But Carson City is the seat of government. So yes, we have to start here and do that. They passed an interesting thing with the lawyers in Carson City saying that since the Senate it governs its own rules, it can create a rule that supersedes or overpowers the Constitution. I disagree with that. And that's what they passed. However, that allowed some people to be able to go home and vote remotely or, you know, individuals that need to get things done. Uh, Senator Pickard had a doctor's appointment he had to get back to. So it was there. It was an avenue to use. However, I think it would be dangerous to do in a tax situation or any situation where someone might be tempted to sue on that. But then again, our Constitution also says that the Senate and Assembly has to be open to the general public. Yeah. Well, we're in session, and they did not do that. They did not do that. There were there were people outside of the of the legislature, but it was not open to the general public, and it was not always easy to know when they were going to be meeting. Um, I'm wondering if you, either of you, had an easier time getting notices of when you were going to be meeting. I know that uh, Keith, you talked about. Um, uh, a, a, a session starting at 11:30 at night on Thursday night. Uh, when yeah, did you, when did you find you, out I about that? I believe that was either a 1:30 p.m. or it may have been a 10 a.m. 
yeah. uh, session start. That's what the agenda called for right. originally. Right. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm not going to be completely uh, disparaging of uh, my Democrat colleagues uh, because these things are kind of hard to predict sometimes, particularly when there's no prior organization, no no effort or no apparent effort prior to the start of the session to get the bills figured out and drafted and in place and ready to uh, present and vote on. Uh, you know, we didn't get into the substance of the session until probably five or six days in. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there were a lot of uh, hiccups. There were a lot of, of last minute changes because they didn't have a plan going into or didn't appear to have a plan going into the session. Add to that the fact that every decision was viewed through a political lens instead of the merits of the, uh, the question. So, you know, how can we apply leverage? And particularly between the two houses, I, you know, I don't think it's a secret that uh, the Speaker of the House and the Majority Leader of the Senate don't get along very well. Hmm. And so they're each trying to figure out how best to maneuver so that they can gain an advantage and make sure that their priorities get through on the other side. So though the news, uh, 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 the press conferences appeared to have them standing next to each other, I think you'd find that there was a lot of disagreement and a lot of, of uh, difficulty just getting aligned on what they were going to do. Now, in the last few days, I think they lined up because it became clear what the substance was going to be. But there were a lot of different factors creating the, uh, the, the disorganized approach to this session. Interesting. You and I talked a couple of months ago, a few months ago now, when this, uh, when this pandemic first started, about whether or not you were hearing anything from the governor, how uh, the legislature was, was involved, and your answer was, well, we're not right now. Um, but you were okay with that. It was, it was still early. When should you have, uh, when should they have started meeting with you to get rid of, uh, to get rid of, to get ready for this special session? This uh, is Senator you know, Settlemeyer. If I could yeah, address sure. that, traditionally, what has occurred in the past is that the governor has reached out to the majority and the minority party, had conversations with them either in Carson City in person or over the phone in order to tell him them what they were thinking about, what their plans were, to get their input, and then craft the proclamation. So going in, there was already some agreement between the majority and the minority parties and the executive department on what should or could occur during said legislative session. That's why every legislative session I've ever participated in prior to this was two to three days. Right. Every special session. Right. As uh, uh, Senator Selmar just said, had this been done as it has been done in the past, the governor, as soon as he knew what he was going to do, and I'm saying before he actually issued the directives, he should have been on the phone and starting the plan. And then we should have been in, I think, by the 1st of April, if not in special session, in substantive discussions about what we can do now. I mean, we've got two experts, well, actually four experts in the budget. We've got Senator Settlemeyer, particularly Senator Keefer, uh, Senator Goykachia, those three have been on Ways and Means for, or I'm sorry, on uh, Senate Finance for quite a while. 
and then uh, Senator Gansert, who helped craft uh, the budget when she worked for um, uh, Governor Sandoval. And so we have very experienced people that could that really understand the budget and the numbers and, and how the funding works that could have been involved, but they weren't. And the troubling thing is, at least what we heard anecdotally from the Democrats was that they weren't involved either. They weren't involved until apparently about June, about the same time that they got mm. some interesting contributions. Uh, and that's when the substantive discussion started happening, you know, mid-June. Yeah. That's alarming because we were already three months in and now it's too late to do anything about the 2019-2020 budget. So it means that we push all of the uh, final effects into the 2021 um, uh, by, part of the biennium. So in my view, it should have the conversations should have been started before he uh, issued the declaration. They should have been happening in earnest in April, but it wasn't until mid-July that we actually saw any discussion happening. And the discussions didn't start until after we were all up in Carson City. Right. Uh, we've been talking to Senator Keith Pickard and Senator James Settlemeyer about the special session, which took 12 days to complete uh, and left us uh, plugging some holes, but not quite uh, not taking out quite as much money as we thought we were going to take out. Uh, there may be a special session coming up if uh, COVID-19 numbers go down to talk about voting and to talk about social justice issues. We will keep you apprised of that. Both of you, thank you for being on the show, uh, and I will have you on again. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for thank having you. me. Well, another episode of Impact has come and gone. Thanks to Keith Pickard and James Settlemeyer, both senators in the state of Nevada. Keith Pickard is the senator from Henderson. James Settlemeyer is up in Douglas County uh, near Reno. Thanks also to Alexander Appleton for uh, talking with me about our experience in covering this school board. And thanks to everybody who is on the school board and everybody who is on CCS staff who are working really hard to figure out this school year. I just don't think that they're communicating as well as they could be, and they're certainly not communicating with us. And I'm going to reiterate that the meetings should be changed to include people who can call in as public comment. You can get this at KUNV.org. You can also find this uh, on impact.simplecast.com. If you have an iPhone, then you can uh, look us up and put us in your playlist on the Apple Podcast app. And you can also get to me at Carrie Kaufman on Twitter and Carrie Kaufman Nevada Voice on Facebook. Thank you for listening to Impact. I'm Carrie Kaufman. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>